Big Tech's ordinance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it, Big Tech's has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at BigTechsOrdinance.com. Filster makes awesome holsters, but not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Filster make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Join Primary Arms Government on September 10th for their third annual First Responder Range Day, hosted in Pasadena, Texas. This event connects law enforcement professionals with leading industry brands, all while enjoying local food and event activities. In addition to live fire demos, this year's event will feature axe throwing, archery challenges, t-shirt printing, product raffles, and more. If you're an active law enforcement professional or other first responder, RSVP today by visiting primaryarms.com government. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with the PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit WalterArms.com. Hey everyone, Matt Lanfair here with Primary and Secondary. Welcome to Modcast. Today is August 31st, 2022. The episode number is 311311. This is Survival 2. We're going to continue our discussions on the survival topics. We're going to be talking about shelter and clothing, and hopefully we're going to be getting into fire building as well. Uh, an aspect of this that we were just discussing, which I'm going to be very interested in hearing, is comparing how things were to how things are now and what the similarities are. Um, this is going to be a, a really interesting discussion. I'm looking forward to it. As per the norm, I don't know a damn thing about this. So it's going to be great to learn. I love to sit back and, and just appreciate my panel and appreciate their insights and, and really pick up some really cool insights. Um, my background's in law enforcement. I do live in the mountains. That's about it. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been enjoying these. Uh, if you're noticing, based on our last episode, not the Knives one, but the episode about survival stuff, we were talking about rules of, uh, of the threes. We're now at the next, we, it doesn't make sense to cover oxygen, air breathing, or, or, or uh, hemorrhage control, bleeding, because we have that, that's pounded in our head constantly. We're constantly talking about medical stuff. So we skipped that. So we're going into shelter next up after this, the next survival one, we'll be talking about uh, food and water. We also have another knife episode that we're working on as well. We also have an episode talking about improvised tools and their use, which is on the horizon. Um, I think it's time for me to have the other guys start talking and give their intros. Shane. 
I'm uh, Shane Adams from SE Knives and Reynolds Adventure and Training. Uh, my official title is the marketing director slash utility player. Uh, the only only marketing director or marketing people I know that spend more time in the field than I do really is uh, sitting on this panel. That's Evan Hill and his crew. Uh, I know they're doing a lot of different things, but uh, spend a lot of time in the woods with uh, Patrick Rollins and Jeff Randall doing anything from search and rescue to uh, firearms training to uh, survival, bushcraft, you name it. Technical rope rescue. Uh, we cover a lot of cover a lot of bases. Cool, Craig. I'm Craig Cuddle. I'm the director of Nature Blind School headquartered in Winchester, Kentucky. We also do a, a considerable amount of survival training, bushcraft, land navigation, man tracking, animal tracking. Uh, I'm the author of six books now. And um, we, yeah, we spend a lot of time outside, a whole lot of time outside. You want me to jump in here, Matt? <clears throat> All right. Uh, yeah. So Evan Hill, uh, Hill People Gear. Um, and I've spent a fair amount of time outside over the years, which is uh, reflected in the uh, the gear that that we end up designing. Um, and, you know, it's all about efficiency. Uh, I think one thing that's relevant to mention, we touched on before, a whole lot of things change based on your environment. And um, my environment is essentially the western slope of Colorado. I roam further north and further east uh, from time to time, but, you know, the Rocky Mountains up to, oh, I don't, I don't climb 14ers very often, but I get up to the Timberline and above often enough and then out into the deserts, typically in the wintertime. So uh, my perspective environmentally is more of the arid west than, than the eastern, uh, eastern seaboard, which two totally different environments. I'd be a fish out of water if I headed out that way. Good stuff. Anthony. Hey, uh, Anthony Wanniger. I'm a ranger with the National Park Service for about 23 and a half years. Um, really uh, started looking at things like tactical tracking and law enforcement rule tactics uh, starting about 2002 and sort of made that made that my thing. Um, you know, uh, obviously spent a lot of time in the outdoors uh, being paid for it and not being paid for it. My specialty is uh, in the southeast United States. Um, so if I went out West, I would be a fish out of water, um, probably freeze, freeze to death. Uh, but grew up with a dad that was from Salt Lake. So, uh, I had, a, you know, all of his experiences, he's in Marine Corps out there, did, uh, did some drill out there in the desert. So, um, heard a little bit about it. Uh, haven't quite tried it yet and, and want to Evan at some point to go, go test myself, but, um, also into, uh, historical living histories and, and experimental archaeology. So taking some of uh, as accurately as I can produce it, some of the older technology, uh, making it uh, brand new and then going out and trying it out. Good stuff. So while you're listening, keep in mind, make sure you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. If you like what these guys are saying, find them on social media give them follows, give them likes. If they're producing content that's helpful for you, make sure you're sharing it. Um, something that Shane's really good at also bringing up on these is for you guys that are listening live or watching live, if you have questions, bring them up and we'll, we'll be happy to answer them. Actually, I, I take that back. They will be happy to answer them 
I'm just going to sit here and, and smile and enjoy this. Um, so rule of threes, we're talking about shelter. We're talking about clothing. We're talking about all of that. So in your guys' opinion, what is the basic need there? As a matter of fact, I guess this wouldn't even be an opinion, would it? It's what is the basic need when it comes to this, when, the, when it comes to this aspect? And that would go to anyone who feels like answering. I'll jump in. Uh, you know, I use the term and I know it's not my term and I wish I remembered uh, who first got this into my head, but really homeostasis, right? It, it's all about keeping the human body at a, a survivable temperature. And, uh, you know, we do talk about heat injuries. We do talk about um, the issues with being warmer than that you know, 98.6 degrees, but obviously in the latitudes we live in a whole lot of what we deal with is being colder than that. So in general, what we're talking about is how to keep your body warm enough, uh, to, to not die. And, um, you know, even the Southeast that's rapidly relevant a whole lot of the time. So, you know, this is, this segment is all about, um, how to keep your body where it needs to be from a temperature standpoint. And there's a whole lot that goes into that. Um, uh, you know, like you said, clothing, shelter, uh, artificial heat sources in the form of fire. Uh, there's even uh, metabolic stuff that goes into it. You know, have you eaten? You know, we say that you're not going to starve to death. Um, and, and that's, you know, any, any sooner than three weeks. And that's true. But you may need food to keep your body warm. And that becomes very relevant if you don't have another way to keep yourself warm. So those are all subjects that I think will end up touching on uh, as we talk about how to keep that body at the temperature that it needs to be in the back country. And, you know, that's a, that's an interest, interesting point that you bring up because from my own experience, I think about that and think of an extreme and think, well, clearly we're talking about just maintaining heat while I'm, while it's cold out. Well, what about if we're in the desert? What if we need to have some kind of, we need cover from the sun. Shane. Craig, Anthony, yeah. I'll uh, I'll jump in and say for 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 me it's moisture management. Um, you know what what given the ambient temperatures, given the ambient uh, or what I reasonably believe to be the ambient humidity to be, whether that's you know, from a specific weather forecast or just in in general for the season that I'm out in, what do I need for moisture management, both exterior and interior moisture? Because um, the one thing I found at least down South is that you're always going to be wet. It's either from your own perspiration or from exterior moisture, uh, whether it's fallen from the sky or whether it's, you know, for, in the form of dew in the morning. So uh, what do I need to help manage that, get it away from my body when I don't want it and, uh, you know, sort of let it allow to uh, allow it to cool me off when I do. And then how long am I planning on, on being in that unique environment? So how long do I have to figure this out for? Shane or Craig? Um, everybody's covered things really well. One thing that I say that kind of brings it home in a very simplistic manner is that your body is the only heater. Well, Evan mentioned artificial heat sources, but your body is the only heater that you take into the woods with you every time you go. If you set it up for success, it'll succeed. If you set it up for failure, it's going to fail. Dad is going to run the gamut of, you know, these artificial heat sources that Evan mentioned, the clothing that we're all going to be talking about, I'm sure, uh, as well as, you know, shelter building, whether it's a simple shelter, uh, whether we set up a hammock, 
you know, whether we have to deal with improvised sheltering equipment, but the end focus should always be on maximizing the functionality of your body. Um, maybe that's a fancy word that Evan used homeostasis, but <laughs> thermal regulation, whatever. But if we put it real simple, it's that, uh, we're carrying that heater with us right now. So we've got to set it up for success. One thing that I always kind of consider too is uh, you have to be aware of your own your own body, what your body likes, and how it responds. Um, for me personally, I've always been a, a mountain biker and an outdoorsman, uh, but I, up until really up until a little bit before COVID, I've always lived life with in single digit body fat numbers uh, because I've always been an endurance athlete from a sense. And skinny boy gets cold quick. Um, conversely. Uh, I have to conserve that heat. If I were to, if I, even now, now that I'm up into the double digits uh, and seem to be heading farther into that way, um, it's even if I'm hot, if I know I'm going to stop whatever it is I'm doing uh, in an aerobic capacity, even if I'm hot, one of the first things I'll do is I'll throw on a puffy jacket or I'll throw on some type of cover so that I don't have this drastic temperature swing um, you know, Evan used homeostasis and, and, you know, I've always looked at our body like a resource in the sense that, and I compare it to how we do in gas mileage. It doesn't matter if you've got a big V8 that gets six miles to the gallon or a Prius, your car works better whenever we're on the highway because all resources kind of get managed out, um, versus driving, in town where we're stopping and going, stopping and going. Well, your body works the same way. It's resource allocation, resource management. So if I can retain heat that I don't have to make back up, then that's going to be far more helpful. So it goes back to what we've talked in previous podcasts too, is putting yourself in uncomfortable situations or in diverse situations so that you know how your body responds. That helps you prepare for whatever's coming down the pipe in the future as well. Yeah, one, one way I figured this out was, uh, had a YouTube channel. And so <laughs> when I would put information out on YouTube and say, I did this and this type of weather, people would come on and call me a liar. And I figured, and I mean, I'm not lying. I'm, I wasn't lying. It was really maddening. And I remember thinking, but I'm not lying. This is what I did. And I realized, I mean, I knew this, obviously, but there's quite a diversity in how different people's body works in different conditions. And body fat's an issue for all of us, me in particular, as far as warmth. But I also sleep warm. I guess that's the way people say it. I don't need as much other stuff as some people do. I'm not the guy that's in a training event or whatever that's walking around in a T-shirt being, you know, tough guy. But, but I, it's just very interesting to see the diversity of how different people's body works in a particular sleeping bag or a, you know, a hill people gear serape or whatever it might be. It's just, it's, it's hard to, it's really hard to discuss this. It's definitely hard to write about it because I wrote a chapter on shelter building in one of my books and it's hard to say, this is what you should do. 
because everybody needs to figure out what they need to do for them and they need to test it. One of you guys said, you know, test yourself out in uncomfortable situations, you know, do that with other people so you don't die. But obviously you've got to test these things out and test these theories, if you will, and see if your body works the same way as this guy's body's work or this woman's body works and, and, and compare and contrast and find what works for you. That's very critical. Yeah, it's it's universally known within our community of of Randall's Adventure Training SC Knights. I'm the cold one. I'm always like I'm all I'm colder than everybody else with us. I've always been that way with my riding buddies. Whether no matter what we're doing, however many layers they're wearing, I'm I'm in plus one. I'm I'm one more layer than they are, um, and that's just the way my body works. It's something I will not be cold even in the dead of summer. I'm carrying a puffy jacket along with a raincoat. Um, I can be cold. I've been, I've been absolute frozen. And so that's why I'll go prepared uh, whenever, even in the Southeast, when it's, you know, 90 degrees and 90% humidity, uh, I still get cold at night sometimes, especially when sleeping in a hammock. So, which I do a lot. So that, that's important knowing how your body works. Yeah. I'm going to add in there too, that, uh, talking about from a law enforcement perspective and a team perspective, right? Like, you know, if you have a job on the team, your job is to do that job. No one cares if you're cold, no one cares if you're hot. So your responsibility as that teammate is to ensure that you have the proper equipment to regulate your own comfort level in order to be able to do that job. Right. So, you know, and to me in a proper on a proper team, no one is ever made fun of for being like the cold person. Like if it's, you know, 60 degrees outside and you've got on a, a puffy Arcteryx jacket, you know, no one should ever be like, Hey man, why are you cold? It, it should always be a, uh, okay. He's cold. He's putting on a jacket. That's good. That means he's, he's prepared to do what he's supposed to. He's monitoring his own, his own conditions. Um, I've had a privilege to be able to uh, speak with several um, law enforcement, civilian aviation, um, search and rescue uh, pilots and crews and, and, and manhunting um, pilots and crews as well. And uh, teach them a little bit about, you know, rural survival. And again, it's American Southeast. So we're talking, you know, likelihood of 24 hours, being the maximum time before rescue crews got to their helicopters is probably about the average. But one of the things that I always mentioned to, to them is dress to egress, right? So it might be 95 degrees in the, in the summertime when you take off from that airport, but um, you may need to retain that body heat sitting in the cockpit with, with uh, no functioning arms, right? Or, 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 or one functioning arm and a broken femur. So you may have to reach over and grab that, that puppy jacket in the cockpit and put that over you. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, the, the shelters, right? So the, the space blanket type shelters. And it's like, man, the, uh, if, if you're going to carry one of those, I've always been a bigger fan of the uh, uh, mummy bag style of those because you may not always have the ability to, to roll that thing out and sort of spread it out with two arms and put it over you. It may be something that you're trying to crawl into with minimally functioning uh, capabilities. S 
something that a couple of you have kind of triggered as I was thinking about this episode, um, probably good to bring it up earlier rather than later. And that that's the mechanisms of heat loss. We, we talk about uh, radiant heat loss, which is just simply heat radiating out of our body. We also talk about convective heat loss, which is air movement around your body, speeding that process of losing heat loss. Also conductive heat loss, which is, um, you know, when we're on the ground or against any other object, we can literally lose heat into that object. Was that all of them, Craig? I think, I think that's all right. Yeah. You're muted you right now. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Now? Okay. So, yeah. So we talk about those three and, you know, I had to laugh about the uh, hammock, Shane, because I am no fan of hammocks unless I'm trying to stay cool because there you've got all kinds of convective heat loss going on. It's, you know, it's a great recipe to lose a lot more heat than you thought you were going to elsewise. So when I think about, okay, how am I trying to stay warm? I got to think about all three of those things and i know when you're building shelters craig you're you're definitely insulating from the ground you're definitely thinking about where the wind's coming from and what you're going to do about that um you know as well as just building as much insulation as you can to protect against that radiant heat loss so i keep all three of those things in mind as we have our discussion yeah and again maybe i'm just a simple person <laughs> but the simple way i try to get this across to folks is that if you've got a $100, I know it takes a lot more than that, you all. But if you got $100 to set up your sleep system, then you need to spend $75 on the pad and $25 on the sleeping bag. We get so focused on the bag, and the industry does. You can, you can take a $5,000 sleeping bag and lay it directly on the ground, and you're going to get cold quick. So you've got to do something to keep from conducting heat from your body into the ground. And so I'm not saying you always have to carry a sleeping pad with you. I'm just saying, if you're going to be on the ground, you better be putting some sort of insulator on the ground. And I think last time we talked about my love of the garbage bag, uh, this is, this is it. The garbage bag is fantastic piece of survival gear. Again, it keeps the wind and the water off of you. If that's all you have, just throw it over your head. And if you need to, something to lay on the ground, you know, you can lay it on the ground and keep yourself dry. You can fill it full of leaves and you got an immediate mattress basically to keep yourself off the ground and keep conducted. Now, you know, Boone and those guys, Anthony's going to talk about this some too, but you know, Boone's existed for long periods of time with just a, basically a canvas tarp. And he would lean up against a tree, wrap that around him, build a little fire between his legs. When he got hot, he would take that off. When he got cold, he would wrap it around him and the tiny little fire. And when I'm saying a fire, I'm talking a tiny little fire and warm back up and just sleep through the night like that. I mean, the Draper papers detail this very succinctly, how these guys live for long periods of time in the outdoors. So, you know, it's, and that's just basically a wraparound blanket. And it's not an insulator either. It's just something to keep the wind off of you, keep the rain off of you and uh, utilize the fire to help thermoregulate your body. In the, uh, in the Victorian era, people thought that if you sat directly on the ground, uh, then you could actually catch some sort of ailment that would eventually kill you. And so um, the vulcanization process, which was uh, Charles Goodyear's initial invention to add rubberized material to a otherwise not or otherwise porous type of cloth, right? So making a rubber ground cloth 
um, you know, eventually it morphs itself into material for rain jackets. Um, in the 18th century, they had uh, painted material that was predominant in river boats and, uh, and seafaring cargo. So it's linseed oil and usually some sort of pigment that's painted on the material as a tarp, very heavy, um, not, not typically something that was that I have found was carried, uh, like in the back country, it would normally be some sort of tightly woven linen, tightly woven cotton, um, maybe in the form of a tent, maybe just a square or a scrap, uh, that, that they're using for that. But there is this notion that, that the, the vapors as they called it from the ground, at least as they called the Victorian area era would, would kill you if you didn't have some sort of barrier. So you'll, you'll read accounts of, people sitting on their hats, people sitting on rubberized ground cloths, people sitting on all kinds of things uh, in order to prevent direct contact with wet ground. Yeah, and Craig, I got to say, my experience bears that out. I would much rather have a good ground pad than sleeping bag. It's, it's huge. It's, it's, and everybody overlooks it. You're absolutely right. That's, I'm big on a good, good uh, ground pad for sure. And I, I think me and you talked about this last year once, Evan, but uh, I've said this and people that come to our classes see this happen all the time, but I've slept and I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm in Kentucky and it gets cold here, but it doesn't get exceptionally cold. I've slept in Pennsylvania classes, Kentucky classes, Wisconsin, which is gets pretty cold up there when we go up there and teach. But I have slept under one of your Serapes for years now. I haven't used a sleeping bag that often. I mean, but I spend a lot of time making sure that what's between me and whatever I'm laying on, even if it's in the back of my truck is very, very, I mean, I spent a, I spent a lot of money on my pads, a lot of money when I'm going to be able to carry a pad because I yeah. want it to work well. And I've slept under Serape. I don't know how many times, I mean, and I'm talking really cold weather and it's one of those things that when I, I put that out, it was another thing that YouTube sucks about, put it out in a YouTube video and people are calling me a liar. And I'm like, but I'm not, I mean, I know I sleep warm, but I'm really focused on that ground and it, it's a critical component of all of this. Uh, what pads are you using? Uh, Evan and Craig both be curious to hear. Okay. So when I'm like glamping, I use a Hest pad. <laughs> Have you seen these things? Oh, Lord have mercy, man. When I'm saying I'm, I'm calling glamping. Okay. Like I'm pulling up and I'm going to sleep in the back of the truck. This thing stays in the back of my truck. It's a Hess pad. It's a, it's a air pad that you pump up and then it's got a thermorest mattress on top of it. I slept out in that thing in three degree weather with a Serape. I mean, it's, it's the funk daddy that's in the back of a truck with no wind on me too. Right guys. Um, then I've got, um, shoot, the name escapes me. Climate is the one that I've used with great success, not necessarily because it's the greatest pad, but it's the one that's lasted the longest. I had the most terrible time. Maybe we shouldn't say this. Maybe well, I'm going to say it anyway. That's what we're here for. Yeah. I have a Do terrible it. time with Thermarest. I mean, I, I would get Thermarest and they would last no time before they were just garbage. And, and so I, you know, I, I've probably had 20 different pads in the last 15 years. I've had the climates that I'm using right now. There's a climate pad that I've used in my hammock and on the ground that I've been using for 
nine years now, maybe 10. And the five years before that, I probably had 15 other ones. I don't know, man. It was terrible. I was big Agnes and Thermarest. Uh, I'm not saying that they're bad companies, but my experience with them was not pleasant. So I had a really good run with a big Agnes insulated air core. And by really good run, I mean, I think three or four years. Um, and I was happy with that pad. Then I got another one when that one failed. And I swear like three times out and that insulated air core was no longer holding air for me. Uh, I replaced that with, Oh, Thermarest makes, Oh, I think it's two and a half, three inches thick. And it's, uh, it's got a nice high R value. It's like six or seven. I don't remember the name of it, um, but it's relatively new for them. So I've had that on the last three trips so far, so good. But yeah, it, it's rough, Craig, because you get to a certain point where like, you know, money or not, I don't want to be replacing my gear and having it fail me in the middle of the night. So if you'd asked me a year ago, I'd have said Big Agnes Insulated Air Corps. Now, I don't know what to tell you, honestly. And yeah, for glamping, I got a full on mattress in the back of my truck with memory foam on top. <laughs> No screwing around. I got, you know, I some, don't, yeah. I'm hashtag sorry, not sorry for that too. I mean, I love yeah. being outside sleeping and, yeah. you know, I'm 53 years old, boys. I mean, I'm going to take some stuff on occasion that make me comfortable and I don't give a crap. I, I, and I still do the been there, done that lay on the ground with a rock underneath of me. I still do that now, but if I don't have to, <laughs> I'm not going to. Well, well, I think it, if you have the ability to in a vehicle, absolutely. But being man portable, is that is that viable? Well, I think I think what you Hell have. Hell no. Okay. Yeah. That, that was you, a big no, man. Yeah. No, that's pat, a glamping pat pad. Meal, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's a glamping pad. Let me be clear. So you have but the I kids think, carry that. No, I carry that with my truck, dude, because that's the no, only no. way I'm going to that thing around. Just have your kids carry it. You'll be fine. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry, Shane. I, no, that's fine. I'm finding the same things where um, – I've been a, a Thermarest fan for years and I have slept almost exclusively in a Hennessy hammock or a war bonnet hammock for the last two years. And oddly enough, <coughs> excuse me, my, my, uh, Thermarest pads have held up there. Um, I've had issues sleeping on the ground, actually at demo days, Craig, when we were together, I woke up that first night laying on the ground, uh, because my hammock had, uh, not my hammock, but I was sleeping in a tent on that one. And, uh, I punctured it and, and, mm. I, and I had two, so I'm in the market, um, for another one. Something else to keep in mind is, uh, I know you don't owe an apology, nor does Evan or either myself either for, for sleeping on whatever we can get to, because we know the importance of sleep. And I think something that people need to understand is, is we spend a lot, I spent 174 days in the field in 2021. Uh, not all those were actually in the field, but 100, basically 174 days out and about, oftentimes multiple times. So if I can sleep in a good bed and get good sleep, I'm going to because that's imperative that I have that at 50 because uh, I can function for a good long while without sleep, but we have some ridiculous travel blocks. So the importance of rest um, and a good comfortable rest uh, go a, a long way towards having good performance in the field for whatever it is I'm doing. So, uh, man, I'm with you on that. If I can uh, sleeping comfortably is very important to me. One of the reasons I chose to go with a hammock here is because when we are in the field, oftentimes, 
there is we're in we're in the back country and here in the east coast there's no even a, a small one or two person tent it can be hard to find a place to pitch in some places uh and sleep kind of remotely levelish so a hammock solves a lot of that for me uh don't think you're going to get into a hammock setup and it and it be lightweight because my hammock setup is actually probably a little heavier than um than, than what my tent setup is and it's because i have to carry a, a little more insulation and a pad and some other things to uh if not you're going to wake up feeling like you're uh your butt's sitting on a uh, block of ice if you're not careful. Serious question here about hammocks because I, I slept in hammocks for several years too. Um, I, and I still do on occasion, but not as often. Um, under quilts or pads? I ended up going heavy with uh, with a pad. I just didn't find that an underquilt, although it is all the freaking rage, I just never found that it did what it was – I mean, even from a scientific perspective, looking at, it, I don't see that it can do what it's supposed to do. Forgive me, but no, no, I agree. Oh, I, I I use my thermarest pad the same that I do in my. I think I have a Neo Air. Uh, I use a thermarest pad, or if, if I'm on a search and rescue mission, um, I carry one of the foldable. I think it's climate the the egg crate carton pads. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I found the same thing. You can get you can spend a tremendous amount of money on an underquilt and uh, it just didn't do the same for me that, so I use the air pad, normally a, a Thermarest Neo air pad underneath and, and that's year round. Uh, even on a 60 degree night here in the South, you will still, I will be cold uh, because your sleeping bag has no loft. So it's just kind of like butting the wind out there, catching all kinds of evaporative heat uh, or, or heat loss. So, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Uh, there's a thousand different quilts out there and somebody's going to say, um, you know, you're just not doing it right, which I've been told that I set my, my hammock up wrong before on multiple times by hammock experts, but it works for me. So I'm okay with that. Everybody's an expert on the internet too. Hammock, hammock experts, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's tons we're internet <laughs> experts. The internet's full of experts. So I love them. They're the oh, I so, so the yeah. thing on these air pads, um, they do work great when they're working. Uh, something that I've done for years now, uh, my chair is a crazy Creek hex light, which is basically it's a, think of it as like a three quarter length, um, close cell phone pad with some straps on it. And for me, that's my backup. And I mean, there was one night where I don't, I don't know how cold it got. I think it was below zero, but my, what was I using then? I like Craig, I've used more pads. Like if I start thinking about it, I'll come up with a bunch of names of different pads. This was uh, an X pad that again, had worked really well, super high R value below zero. It failed me. And I spent the night curled up on top of that little crazy Creek because I had it as a backup. So I don't ever go with an air pad without having that as a backup, or I don't like to anyhow. I spent a very similar night, Evan, uh, where I had a, uh, kind of a what i call a bonus night where we weren't really planning on spending the night in the field and we wound up uh, getting a bonus night in the field uh i had that three-quarter pad uh from i think it's a climate pad the egg crate pad my feet were so cold that uh, i had my kuya uh, hill people gear kuya there so i basically slept on the pad and then stuck my feet like wore the sleep wore uh put my sleeping bag inside the uh um the kuya 
as another measure of, of insulation there. And that worked out pretty good. So I wore my backpack on my feet up to about my knees. Dude, if That's, you haven't lived yeah. until you've used a backpack as a, as a foot warmer, <laughs> I mean, everybody I know is at some point in time, like, Oh crap. I, this is all I've got. I mean, it's, I'm it's cold just, and I'm going to add this. Yeah. yeah, man. I've, I've stuck my arms in on my feet and my head in them. I mean, it's, you just use what you have. So standard practice, uh, you don't sleep in your raincoat, but I always try to use my raincoat as a mini bivy bag around my feet. So I'll zip mm. it up and pull it up over my sleeping bag and, you know, it gets up to the knees or whatever, but that's also an area where I can usually use more heat. So that's a good little trick to use as well. That's a good idea. Um, I have a quick question for everybody. Do you, do you tend to change your, uh, outlook on what a good night's sleep is, uh, compared to like a good night's sleep at home when you're out? I don't think I'm following your question, Anthony. Could you clarify for me? Yeah, I'm, well, slow. I'm from Kentucky. Sorry. No, that's all right. <laughs> um, so let's say that a good night's sleep at home is eight, eight, eight and a half hours. of good, like temperature regulated, comfortable sleeping pad type of sleep. Do you change that outlook when you head out to the field? And if so, like how much, like in other words, are you considering, let's say it's a planned event. So you got everything that that you would normally take with you do you consider that same amount of sleep to be uh successful or do you consider somewhere shy of that and then i uh, say the unplanned also right where you don't have everything you would like and you're having to improvise in several different uh uh arenas do you what do you consider to be acceptable at that point like in other words what's your individual metric for mission success both planned and unplanned in terms of rest well, I think it, one thing, it goes back to what Shane was saying earlier, which is sleep is critical to proper functioning, good morale. However, if I'm going on a trip, whether it's I'm training myself or training others, it doesn't matter. And I want good to sleep, then I'm going to do the Hest pad in the back of the truck and going to sleep like a king and all that kind of good stuff when I can. But there's like, we had a knife only survival class last year where, literally walked out in the woods with what was on us in our knife. And we built, uh, some of us built some bedding out of some hay and straw and grass that we found. And I tried to, but it caught on fire and I caught on fire with it. Thank goodness. Tracy Trimble was there to wake me up and Hey, <laughs> but when I went to bed, I've completely expected that I'm not going to get my normal seven hours of sleep that I get every night. And I guess this goes back to, again, just quoting Shane again, just being comfortable in uncomfortable situations. I've been there, done that a bunch. And so I know ahead of time, okay, this is going to be one of those nights where I'm not going to sleep, but maybe an hour or two. And then I might have to get up and soak the fire, or I might have to get up and check people and do fire watch or whatever it might be. And you just, you just have to have experience or start getting experience now to be ready for that and know when it's coming. And even if it comes as a surprise, you've been there, done that before. So you know what to expect. So my expectation, in the backcountry, um, I'm exerting myself more than I do in my everyday life. So I'm actually expecting to sleep more soundly and longer. Um, 
and some of the best nights sleep I've ever had are actually in the back country. And part of that is I don't stay up around the fire. I don't stay up reading. So I go to bed when it gets dark and I wake up when the sun comes up and that's usually longer than I sleep when I'm at home. And, you know, I carry rest is king. Like at this point I carry two inflatable pillows when I'm backpacking because I'm a side sleeper and I sleep more comfortably. And that extra quarter pound is, you know, that I had to carry all day long is easily recouped when I get a good solid night's sleep. So, you know, for me, I mean, I've had plenty of crappy night's sleep, you know, curled up on a three quarter sleeping pad, for example, but in general, I want more and better rest than I get at home. 100% agree on that. I generally sleep better. I'm an insufferable, incorrigible night owl. And, and so I have all the distractions at home and the comfort of being home. And so I will just watch the clock wind at home when it gets dark in the woods. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm oftentimes one of the earlier ones to turn in. And also it, it goes back to, um, whatever mission or whatever, uh, situation I'm in, I'll bank sleep. It, it, you know, if I know I've got a four day, uh, class ahead of me and it's all in the back country, I'm banking sleep for that one night. Uh, the nights that it is comfortable, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm go ahead and banking sleep because I know there might be one night where I get none. And, and so I think part of that's being older and wiser, uh, as I've gotten, uh, older, I, I found that uh, my body needs more sleep. I need, I don't recover like I used to. I used to be able to pop up and be able to go, you know, full tilt boogie right out of the gate. And I don't, I, I, I wake up in the morning now, like the 10 man needing oil on the joints. Um, so being able to sleep and bank sleep and sleep comfortably uh, is important. But I, like Evan, I agree. I, I actually sleep better in the woods and get more sleep when I'm out on mission or doing certain things. Unless, unless it's just something I can't, like our field survival class, I work the night shift and I can't sleep during the day. So, uh, I'm just a terrible sleeper during the day. I can't sleep when it's daylight. So, so that's a, that's a long weekend for me. And so I try to bank sleep up front and then I try to make sure I have a pretty open schedule whenever I, uh, I get back home so I can get caught back up on rest and get back to functioning again. I brought that question up so that, mostly so that, you know, folks who might be intimidated or who might be accepting the fact that, Hey, if, if I'm going to be out in the outdoors, I should just already understand that it's not going to be like it is at home or it's not going to be as good as it is at home. Or, um, and I bring that question up to sort of like show that, you know, it's, it's okay to change your expectations, but you should also, I, I think, I believe be focused on, uh, trying to make it a, a better experience where you can, or at least an as good as experience, because if you go out and you suffer every time you're out, um, or if you, you know, think that maybe four hours of sleep is just good enough when you're out camping, then you're probably not doing it right. And that's a good time to start looking more at what, what's working for you and what's not and, uh, changing that up. Yeah. I've on a Kate. Yeah. Man, this is a hard thing to say that that I say to folks, but but um, I recommend people being bring earplugs if they're not used to being in the outdoors, because if you're not used to sleeping on the ground and hearing all those forced sounds and everything, everything's going to get you right. 
and you conjure this stuff up in your head and more than likely it's not, I'm not saying you shouldn't be prepared, but I think that that's another thing that comes with a lot of time in the outdoors. You, you, it's no different than in the home. I mean, you hear things at the house that wake you straight up and you get ready to rock. And there's other times where, um, you hear things and you're okay with it. Same thing in the outdoors, but typical person that's not spent much time outside. I recommend earplugs because when the coyotes start yipping and yapping, they're going to wake you up and now you're going to be scared because you're new to being outdoors and you think they're going to come in your tent and drag you off and they're not. And so just wear earplugs to avoid it because I think it's, you know, it's not your bet at the house and there's nothing wrong with getting more experience by using something like earplugs, for example, to get you outside because we all know that's why we're here. We all know that being outside is good period. So let's take the necessary bridge building steps to be able to get more time outside. I'll go even a step further and recommend not the foam ear pads, but the silicone type swimmers ear earplugs. You've never spent a night in the woods with Patrick Rollins. If you're not using ear pads or earplugs, because uh, <laughs> it's like everybody, like the, the, the standard practice now for us is everybody sinks up their camp and Patrick waits until everybody's kind of nailed down. And then he just goes like, Oh, uh, that's his courtesy, but Holy cow, the guy needs a sleep apnea machine, like nobody's business. But, uh, that's between him and his doctor, I guess. But, <laughs> but, uh, I recommend like the, the silicone, you get them at Walmart or wherever, but you can form them and, and man, those things work. I'm a big believer in them, travel with them everywhere I go yeah, inside, outside, wherever I take them with me all the time. So something that we've discussed is the importance of understanding the environment you're in. We have people here that are in different corners of the United States. With that in mind, what are things that you guys are looking for in your sleep systems or rather your sleeping bags? Because we just were talking about the importance of having a good pad and the sleeping bag isn't as important. However, there's still going to be some aspects we probably should discuss as far as what people should look for in a sleeping bag. Evan, I, I want to ask you something related to this. We we had a conversation many years ago. What's the type of insulation that's in the Serape? That's Prima Loft Gold. Prima Loft Gold. And it is yes, the right. yeah, highest warmth per weight of any synthetic insulation and also the, uh, the highest warmth uh, when wet of any synthetic insulation. And, you know, we can have the wool conversation, uh, Short story is I'm not at all a fan of wool, but wool, when it's wet, I think retains 60% warmth. And that Prima Loft is 98% warmth when it's wet. There's just, there's not even any comparison between the two. Um, it, since I've got the floor, I'm going to sidestep your question for a moment, Matt. Um, something, a question you didn't know to ask that I think is even more important is uh, understanding uh, how microclimates work. Uh, so a few truisms are where the wind's moving. It's, there's a world of difference between setting up camp. I mean, you can be a hundred yards away, you know, one location, you're totally warm because you're out of the wind. The other location, you're on a ridgeline or something, you're battling wind all night. It's a hundred yards different. So, you know, a woodsman, somebody who spends time knows to look for those things. Um, cold air settles, right? If you're, in the very bottom of a river valley, it's going to be way cold. It's going to be like 10, 15 degrees colder than if you climb just not very far up the slope. Um, 
uh, southern exposures get warmer and stay warmer. Um, you know, if you're out here in the west, you look at where all the cliff dwellings are, they're always on a south facing cliff. That's where they build their cliff dwellings uh, because they're soaking up that sun all day long. Uh, the rock that they're building into has what we call thermal mass. It retains heat for a long time and then conversely into the day it returns, uh, retains the cool of the night as well. So um, it, before I even think about a sleeping bag I'm carrying with me, it's really important to just look at the environment and say, what's the warmest little pocket? And if you're light on insulation and you get right in underneath a tree or a bush, those will retain heat. You can actually take your thermometer. I'll bet Craig's done this. And, you know, an hour after the sun goes down, you put your thermometer inside of a bush and it's 10 degrees warmer inside of that bush than it is two feet away outside of the bush. So all of those things I would think about before I worried about the gadgetry that I've got with me. And I'm, I'm into the gadgetry. Don't get me wrong, but that's, I, I don't want that to be missed as we have this conversation. Oh, that was very cool. Yeah. Multi-flora, not multi-flora rose, but uh, Japanese honeysuckles an invasive species that's kind of taken over our area here. Privet is down there closer to Shane and Georgia and all that area down there. An invasive species. That's a real, you know, they're, it's going to be one of the first things that leaves out and it's going to be one of the last things that holds its leaves even into fall. So it's not a bad, even though it's invasive and I eradicate a bunch of it doing wildlife habitat improvement. It's a great thing to be set up under or near when you're in the outdoors because of those microclimates, because it's going to hold a lot of heat. And there was one thing we did um, comes to mind talking about this too, Evan. We did a class for a search and rescue team here in Kentucky. Great team, Wolf County Search and Rescue. Look them up. They're a great team. Um, it was a summertime class, and I'm, I'm throwing this out there to see if you all have experience with this. But we had, I can't remember how many people were there. It was 15 to 20, I'm thinking. I don't, I don't remember exactly. But it was, they had to exist for a night with what's in their kit, which helps them learn how to use their kit and then what they need to put in their kit that could be better. Right. And it was a great class for them. I learned a lot working with them and, and I hope they learned a lot from me too, but several of the guys got up and, and guys and gals got up underneath uh rhododendron bushes, which is a common tree here. It's a, it's in the Magnolia family here in the red river gorge area, no insects, I mean, we were getting a lot, eaten alive by mosquitoes and flies and gnats and all that crap. And several people climbed up under these roto, what we call roto bushes here, no insects. And I've asked a bunch of people about that. I mean, I'm talking about entomologists at the University of Kentucky about it. And everybody's like, huh, really? And then maybe it was just that one night and maybe it was just those people. I don't know. You know, it's just, that's a small case study, right? But that's another thing that's going to take your morale real quick to have a buzzing insect around your head all night long to consider these microclimates. It's, you know, as far as setting up your shelter, if you sit up on top of the hill, you know, and there's more wind there, that'll keep the mosquitoes off of you a little bit better. If you're down in the bottom of a draw, it's cooler and that's where insects will like to reside. And so somewhere in the middle, it's going to be a good balance of that. But if you're trying to avoid insects altogether, then you've got to have some wind on you. And once you get wind on you, then you're colder and, and blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's it's where you set your shelter up is just as important as the equipment. 
and, and we all geek out on equipment, but I'm just telling you, I think the key is where you set it up. Yeah, absolutely. Clear, uh, clear calls the, uh, absorption of sunlight during the daytime by leaves and then, um, the radiation, uh, after like, so, say the sun goes down of that heat solar loading. And if you spend a lot of time looking for people, uh, with, with FLIR units, then you can really see that solar loading. And especially like in a helicopter, for example, um, you know, even on what we would consider a, uh, consider a moderately, uh, uh, temperature day, and especially in the American Southeast where you have ample sunlight, you know, triple canopy or, or heavy dense foliage in the canopy, those leaves are absorbing that sunlight during the day and then radiating it right back out. And so you have to have a really good FLIR operator. Same thing with the smaller handheld FLIRs. Uh, you can just kind of see like this sort of monochrome white or black, depending on what, what setting you have your FLIR on for, for the heat signature. And uh, yeah, just like the, the, the amount of heat that leaves can, can take in hold and then radiate back out for a very long period of time. Uh, pretty cool. Pretty cool to see for sure. So sleeping bags, I, you know, I can talk. Um, I, for the longest time, I've, for years and years and years, I've used uh, North Face synthetic bags. Uh, they're cheap on sale. They usually have decent girth to them. Uh, they're relatively light for what they are. The quality is decent. Um, and, you know, I got a bunch of those. And, you know, it took a long time. You know, down kills. Down's not a favorite, but they have the new waterproof downs. Uh, and then the other thing that really started changing my mind about down was I noticed over the years, you know, from the eighties to now, how much better the shell materials are, uh, on sleeping bags where they really do beat up water. Well, and I started just even on my synthetic bags, seeing how little water got through that shell material into the bag. And I started thinking, well, maybe downs. Okay. Um, on account of the shell materials. And then there's the new waterproof down, which I am skeptical about, but I've now for, I guess, two seasons I've been in no, no, a one, one, one year, one full year. I've been using a, uh, a down quilt. Mine happens to be from Thermarest, but, uh, pursuant to having a good sleeping pad, you know, the, the insulation underneath you, um, it always gets compressed anyway. So if you've got a down quilt that you can wrap around yourself nicely, uh, with a good sleeping pad. Uh, so I've got a 20 degree down quilt and that's what I use three seasons out of the year. Uh, when it gets colder, um, I, I think you get to a point where you need a sleeping bag just to keep the insulation tucked around you. At least that's my experience. Uh, and so those times I'm back to a sleeping bag and, um, I've mostly been using North face synthetic, but I, when, uh, Oh, whoever was that bought out Cabela's Bass Pro, um, when they bought out Cabela's and ran Cabela's into the ground, Cabela's sold all of its good stuff. And I got one of their XPG down sleeping bags, 15 degree. And I use that a couple of winters now pretty happily. Um, but I guess one truism I'll leave you with. I spent a long time. Well, 
several years trying to fine tune like, okay, I think it's going to be this cold. So I've got this rating of sleeping bag. I think it's going to be this cold. So I've got the slightly warmer bag. Um, and now I've come full circle to back when I was a kid, I just pretty much always take the warmest sleeping bag because the extra weight uh, of that insulation just is not going to kill me. Uh, it's, it, I, I'd rather do that than, well, crap, I fudged it and the 20 degree, degree bag is not enough. It's in the single digits. Might as well have just had the zero degree bag to start with. And so essentially now I've got a summer bag and a winter bag. And the summer bag is that down quilt and the winter bag, um, well, it has been that Cabela's and I actually got a new one I'm not going to talk about because I haven't used it yet. So, you know, maybe a year from now, I'll tell you, I think it's pretty good. I went with the JV team for a sleeping bag, uh, not the Cabela's or the Bass Pro, the Sportsman's Warehouse. I got one of their bags that they were basically giving away for $25. It's a 20 mm. degree bag and it's been great. I mean, it's absolutely been fantastic. Well, let's say again for everybody listening, I'm in Kentucky where it doesn't get exceptionally cold. But we did a trip last year. It was a fun trip. We were, man, it was fun. But it got down to zero, slightly above or slightly below. I can't remember. I was in that bag with a with the Serape on top of me. That's all I needed. It was a 20 degree. I mean, it was the 20 degree cheap bag. I'm talking $25, you all. I mean, it's, but... Let's take it back. I had the great pad underneath of me too. So um, it's just one of those things, man. I, I think the industry as a whole is all about, you know, get this crazy expensive sleeping bag. And I maybe, maybe if you're in the service in, North, in South Korea or something. <laughs> but uh, other than that, uh, up north, Boreal Forest, Alaska, I've been to Alaska where it was really cold, but it wasn't as, you know, wet cold like it is here in Kentucky. I don't know, man. Uh, that's just my thoughts. Sorry. I'm rambling. I was laughing at Buck's comment a second ago about the Wiggies bag. I got a couple of Wiggies bags a long time ago now, probably 10, 15 years ago. And uh, yeah, man, they're, they're heavy and they don't pack very well, but I will say that, you know, they are for me, extremely warm and comfortable bag. Um, I've got a Kifaru will be that I take a lot of places in the summer and that's pretty much, I mean, sometimes that just gets to be almost too much, but I do love that thing. I guess it's similar to Evans, uh, at least in construction, not material, but similar in, in function to Evans down blanket that he was talking about. And that, uh, that bag in the winter for, for where I am, I've been good. And then I've got, uh, a, uh, outdoor research wall creeper, uh, bivy sack that I've been using a lot lately, but I will say, I, I kind of wanted to mention with the impromptu shelter side of things, for those of you that are looking at bivy sacks without any sort of, uh, pole system in it, if you're not used to sleeping with something directly on top of your face all night, or if you're not willing to like put your face outside of that bivy sack, that, uh, you know, there's those noises that we talked about earlier, the, the woods noises and stuff with something resting on your face that you're not used to all night, uh, that becomes pretty psychologically heavy pretty quick. So I, I, I'll usually not zip the bivy all the way up unless it's pouring down rain. I'll try to have a small tarp or something I can put over that. I don't like the claustrophobia of bivy sacks if I don't have to. Yeah. 
Yeah, one thing that's kind of underlaying this side conversation is just the weight. Um, I don't know how much your $25 bag weighs, Craig, um, but for me, a lot of it's about cutting weight just because, you know, I like to cover a lot of country, steep country. And so the less weight I'm carrying, the better. And, you know, it's funny because I, I'm sitting here sounding like an ultralighter maybe compared to some of you guys, but, uh, you know, by the same token, ultralighters would think I carry an insane amount of gear, but, you know, everything's relative, but uh, yeah, the Wiggies bags are warm. I would not ever carry one on my back if I could help it. So I'm going to be leaning towards the side of Evan and his ultralight thing. Also keep in mind, I'm probably the coldest sleeper here. <clears throat> so um, what, what, what Craig and Evan and Anthony and I are probably not saying is we probably go through a lifetime's worth of gear for a lot of folks in every two or three years. Um, like I, I, I eat gear. Uh, we, I mean, we just use it and use it and use it. Uh, I'm very meticulous. And in fact, uh, within our crew, I'm known to being the guy that's the most meticulous about their gear. And we still manage to just wear stuff out, um, sleeping bags for me. Um, so even in the Southeast, we get, uh, it gets pretty cold here. Like Evan, I will echo what Evan said, uh, for one, for, for a big portion of my life, <clears throat> I had, uh, a North Face cat's meow. I want to say it was a that's 30. The one. That's yeah, the one. That's uh, a 20 degree bag. 20 degree yeah. bag. Um, but I smoked it uh, over. I mean, like like a lot of bags, what you wind up is, with uh, is cold spots um, and some other things where the bag just, I, I'm very, I don't ever store them in the compression sack. I always make sure I loft them up and then make sure I store them in a cotton bag. When I say I'm meticulous about gear, I am way more meticulous about my outdoor gear than I am about most things in my life. Um, I have been using a North Face uh, Hightail. Uh, I want to say it's a, a maybe a, a 20 degree down bag, 850 down bag. Um, so where I travel, what we do, uh, where we spend a lot of time off trail, um, I want to have the smallest pack possible and that pack needs to be what we call, we run what we call a slick pack where I don't have a bunch of stuff hanging off my pack because we do travel off trail through roto, through briars, through all kinds of stuff. So the more, you know, I, you see these guys that have Molly on Molly on Molly uh, that just is just something for to be pulled off your pack or, or to just slow you down. And it greatly increases the amount of effort you have to, to use to get through uh, the brush. Oftentimes I'm on rope <clears throat> with a full pack. Uh, so again, having a slick pack or a pack that you can move with becomes very important. Um, so it's one of those things where I have a quiver of sleeping bags and a, and a quiver of packs. Um, and they, they all kind of, it, it's all mission dependent, but that high tail has served me really well. I have spent some, I, if I know I'm going, well, I normally pack it in a dry bag because it is down. Uh, I have a Marmot zero degree bag that has one of the, the Gore-Tex style coatings on it. And, and it's supposed to be hydrophobic down uh, that I've used in some cold weather stuff. Uh, the, the jury's still out on that. Uh, but the North Face bag has been, has been very good for me. 
I like a 30 degree bag here in the Southeast because if I get hot, I use that thing oftentimes, actually more often as a quilt where I just unzip it completely and sleep directly on my pad. Uh, so then I'm not kind of encumbered in that, in that mummy bag. I just have a, an over quilt and that's a pretty comfortable way for me to sleep. If it's warm, if it's cold, then I can certainly insulate uh, by zipping the bag up and, and stuff and clothes on top of me or under me if I'm in a hammock or whatever that situation is. And Craig, I you just pointed out something that's very important. You heard. I'm sorry. I talked over you, Matt. What'd you say? Oh, and you just pointed something out in chat that you found to be very important that Shane just said. Yeah. I just want to accent what Shane said. Um, you don't want to store your sleeping bags. Those that are listening, you don't want to store them in a compression sack. You want to store them where they can loft. I have a dedicated shelf in my garage where all my sleep gear lays so it can get plenty of loft to it. Some people throw them in the back of a closet so they can be, get some loft or something, but just do not store them in a, in a compression sack. That's what he just said is gold there. That's the quickest way to ruin and shorten the shelf life of the bag is to store it in a compression sack. Yep. Hey, I think another topic we should discuss guys and, is what we wear inside of our sleeping bags, hmm. uh, which is next to nothing <laughs> for me. <laughs> and sometimes it is nothing for me. Uh, your, what are your all's thoughts on that? I have a uh, question. Do you keep your normal clothes in your bag? Well, just you depends. I don't put uh, a lot of dirty and wet clothes in my bag. Yeah. Uh, I, Cause I don't want that moisture in there. Cause it'll still be in there when I wake up and which brings up another topic. I've already gone off on a tangent, but when I get up, I hang my bag whenever mm. I can to let as much moisture dry out. I've turned inside out and hanging out. One of the first things I do when I get up, if it's not raining so that as I'm packing and moving or whatever we're doing, which doesn't happen a lot for me anymore, but, but at the very least I'm going to get a lot of that moisture out of there before I pack it and then sleep in there again. So I'm not putting dirty wet clothes in my bag. Um, but, um, but again, I don't sleep in any clothes. Um, my understanding of it, and I would love to be corrected or backed up on this guys. I'm really interested to hear what your all's thoughts are on it. But my understanding is this, you, your body is a heater. And so you get in there with two or three, four or five layers of clothes. You've got to heat those layers of clothes up before the sleeping bag can actually do the work it was designed to do. Am I thinking of that clearly? You all agree with that? I would agree to that. I'll, a lot of times I will, I don't like you. I don't get in there with dirty clothes. I keep a pair of very light running shorts. If it's summertime, uh, if it's wintertime, I have a pair of, uh, very lightweight, uh, long johns or, or, you know, mm -hmm. insulated underwear. So you're, you're not retaining that heat, but you do have to keep the bag. If you get in that sleeping bag in your Gore-Tex gear and other stuff, then the sleeping bag never gets trying to like preheat the oven. You, it doesn't ever get there. Um, uh, so for me, I don't like you, I don't, I don't get in there with dirty clothes. If I can, if I can prevent it. Uh, first thing I do when I get to camp, is I pick out a tent site and I try to get camp made as quickly as possible. And I take my bag out, I shake it, shake it, shake it, turn it inside out. It's in the hammock. Uh, my hammock has a bug net on it. So it gets plenty of ventilation. Uh, same thing in the morning. I do the same thing in the morning. I turn it inside out, try to make sure it's good and dry. Uh, I don't often sweat at night. So I don't have, cause I, I'm a cold sleeper. So I don't have to worry, really worry about sweating in it. Uh, so 
Yeah, that's that's my first thing is make sure I get that bag lofted and and get the uh, get the air pad blown up, get the bag lofted so it's good. Um, and it also absorbs some of that warmth from the daytime too. Uh, so when I crawl in at night, it's going to be good and warm usually. Evan, so. I thought it might be the odd man out here. I don't know, honestly, Craig, if there's science behind it or not. Um, I've worked both sides of this for years and years and years, close on or close off. What I think now, based on my experience, is that clothes on is better because it's more insulation with a couple of super important caveats. One is if the clothes are so tightly fitting that they restrict blood flow, or that they can't themselves loft around your body, it's going to take you backwards. Uh, and the second thing is, if there's not enough internal volume in your sleeping bag, again, your clothes are going to be compressed and the sleeping bag is going to be compressed. So for me, I make sure my sleeping bag is big enough that I've got plenty of space inside of it with my clothes. And I do go to sleep in my hiking clothes. And um, if they're damp, I count on my sleep system to dry them out. And mm -hmm. I was listening to what you were saying. And I think a big difference is I'm in the arid West. So mm -hmm. I can go to sleep with damp pants. Uh, I will change my socks when I go to sleep. So I've got dry socks on, but I'll put my damp hiking socks in the foot of my sleeping bag. And by morning, everything that's in the sleeping bag is dry. And yeah, that I think may Anthony. not work for me back east. I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't work. And not where mm -hmm. we are in the southeast, just because the ambient uh, humidity, generally speaking, is so high that if you go to bed damp, you're going to wake up damp. I think Anthony yeah. said it earlier, but this this is why it's hard to write about this subject. You write a, If I write a magazine article or I mean I write a book, I mean, I picked up my my book to refresh my memory on some things that I wrote about. And I'm reading my material going, Craig, you're trying to satisfy everybody. And there's no way you can satisfy everybody because if I'm trying to write a book that answers the question for, um, Evan in Colorado, then I'm not answering the question for Shane in Georgia. <laughs> I mean, it's just impossible. That's why it's critical. Um, you're listening to four or five of us here that have a ample amounts of experience and we're, we're arriving at different solutions. And one of the reasons for that is our own considerable or less considerable body heat and the geography and weather patterns of where we live. I, I can't, although we'll throw a bunch of ideas out there, everybody's got to get out and try these things in your area with your body and see what works for you. And it's even dependent upon the sleeping bag you choose, the socks that you're wearing, the the underwear. Like there's so many variables in this is that's where there's no substitute for dirt time and figuring something out. Then as soon as you get it figured out, then you'll change something in the system. And then it has to, you just have to go back to the cycle again. I, I was about to say like for, for me, for modern camping, um, I'm going to, I'm going to call it modern and historical to differentiate, but for modern camping, I will sleep if I can, the driest, loosest clothing I can. And if I can throw some of the, you know, uh, the hand warmers or something in there or a warmer bottle of water or something just to, to try to create some additional heat in there. Um, but I will try to put on dry socks and I will absolutely try to put on the driest clothing that I have now, historically, um, 
you know, my, my footwear is completely different, right? I'm not in hiking boots. Uh, historically I'm in, you know, brain tan moccasins, for example, which tend to absorb a lot of moisture during the day. So I will sleep in those, um, in part because I want some protection on my feet. If I do have to get up in the middle of the night, um, it, or if, uh, if they are wet and underneath that blanket, and I will say that the absolute best I have ever slept outside was, uh, in uh, temperatures in the teens, or at least wind chills in the teens, um, temperatures in the twenties, uh, underneath, uh, two wool blankets and a brain tan bison hide. Now I would never want to carry that bison hide anywhere. Uh, but I will say both the, the, the warmth factor that it provided and the weight, you just sort of the comfortable sleeping from all that weight on top of you, like a weighted blanket, almost, um, that was, that was very hard to beat and very hard to replicate, but again, I wouldn't want to carry it anywhere. Um, but yeah, I think was it, that it, hair it, in, I'm sorry to butt in. Did you sleep with the hair in or the hair out on, on the hide? So two different nights and one each, cause I wanted to find that out. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting on a bear hide right now and, uh, and, and I will, uh, with this bear hide, if it is cold it will be hide or, or skin side down and i'll sleep on top of the hair um but if if it's warmer out then i'll put the hair side down so I don't get quite as much warmth on the bottom now the bison hide i found obviously that hair side down was a lot warmer but i didn't have to worry about moisture there either and and the, the one issue i have with brain tan uh leather particularly is it it is very absorbent of moisture. So if there's any moisture around, it's going to take it, it's going to suck it in and it's going to be extremely clammy and hard to dry over time. Thank you. I want to piggyback on something uh, Evan said earlier, just to accent it because it's a big thing that I see that's a common mistake is loose clothing. The two big ones that I think happen are socks because people get in a sleeping bag and they put two or three pairs of socks on, for example, your blood can't flow to your feet very well if you do that. And if you are going to wear clothes of any type, like there's classes where we're rucked up, rifled up, and we got to sleep with our rifles on our chest and stuff too. There's If you crank that belt down to keep everything on tight, then you're basically limiting the blood flow to the lower half of your body too. And so that is, that's a game changer as well. You've got to figure out some sort of system so that if you're sleeping with your pack on and your rifle on your chest and you got a belt on, loosen that belt up a little bit. I mean, if you got to get to work, keep it tight enough where you can get to work, but at least not crank down where you're not getting blood flow to your legs because your legs, your feet particularly will get cold. And then in, in, in just a simple trick, you know, that I've been using for years and I'm, I'm SF dude taught me this in a class I was teaching. He was teaching me um, was uh, just rub your core because basically what's happening there for your extremities, your toes and your fingers is that your body says, Hey, we're getting cold. We got to maintain the viability of our organs. So we're going to stick restrict blood flow to the fingers and the toes. And in so doing, 
um, those things get colder first. So if you rub your core, just rub your belly, like a, you know, anybody's silliness would rub your belly. You warm your fingers up by friction for one, you bring blood flow to the organ tissue, which the body says, okay, the organs are okay. We can send blood flow back out to the toes now and your toes will warm up by rubbing your belly. Try it boys in the deer stand this year. I promise you it'll work. <laughs> promise. Anthony's doing it right now. That's exactly right. With, with a bear paw, no less. I got it. You know, I, I have no idea if there's any science behind this whatsoever, but I will tell you that I will take uh, those hand warmers and I put them in my front, uh, like hand pockets right on my pants. Right. So they're hanging down just around my inner thighs there. And I swear that makes my entire body much warmer. And that's the same thing I'll do if I have them when I'm sleeping. I don't try to like game the system and put them on my feet. If they're sticky and they're belong on your toes, I don't, I don't listen to that nonsense. I put them in those pockets first and foremost. And that just generally makes, at least it makes me feel warmer. So I have no science to back it up. The science there on that, when we start talking about wilderness first aid is uh, putting them at the junctional joints where it'd be, you know, <clears throat> if, you, if your hands are cold, putting a, putting a hand warmer underneath your armpit might actually be warmer. Uh, same goes when you're putting them there on, inside the groin in that area because it's heating that blood over, over the tops of bones where it's a little thinner. Um, one thing I look for, and and we're kind of moving. We we hit on, we hit on um, the sleeping bag thing. Um, so when we start moving to clothing, one of the things I really look for in clothing is I want a tight fit, or not a tight fit to where it's cutting off blood flow, but I want a fairly form fitting base layer. If I'm wearing base layer upper and lower, I want something that's not gonna not going to, if I'm in a, if I'm in a climbing harness or, or a, or a t rope tech harness, you know, I don't need a lot of stuff to gather. And what I, particularly what I look for when it comes to, to clothing, especially at the base layer, at the mid layer is, um, I want it to be brushed on the inside and I want it to be smooth on the outside. Uh, if you think about the old school Columbia jackets that used to have the zip in liners, they always gather in bunch right here. And then you've also got a cold spot at the zipper. What I'm looking for on a base layer is something that that's form fitting, that fits me snug, uh, that's brushed on the inside, depending on the weight. Um, and then smooth, smoother texture on the outside on the mid layer, the insulating layer, I use a puffy a lot, but if I'm using something more of like an expedition weight style underwear, I want that outside to be really smooth I have a Patagonia uh, pullover called the Alpinus Fleece that's, gosh, 25 or 26 years old that's form-fitting and very smooth on the outside. Still one of my favorite pieces of gear. Arc'teryx makes a jacket called a Fugitive, or they used to years ago, called the Fugitive Jacket that's brushed on the inside, smooth on the outside. That way you get layers that move across each other in a way that is unencumbered and doesn't bunch or gather. And you don't get the stuff that could create pressure points, hot spots, or any discomfort while you're in a, any more discomfort than what you experience normally in a, in a harness or something like that. So. So also the, the form fitting base layers, uh, the science is they should do a better job of move, moving moisture away from your body. And the brushed inside uh, creates a capillary action that, again, 
draws the moisture away from your body. So what you're describing is exactly what should work best to get the moisture off of your body and move it outwards to where it can evaporate quickly. So I'm, I'm right with you on the, uh, on the base layers and, and what that should look like. And Evan, so, that, that smoother exterior. Um, so if you have the brushed interior, the smoother exterior, that smoother exterior is designed to spread that moisture out over a broader surface area to give it the best chance of evaporation. Is that right? Uh, I don't know if that's precisely true, um, but what I've observed happen, you know, because I, I, I've had fleece back when fleece was typically brushed inside and outside, it seems like the moisture gets trapped in the outer layer if it's brushed on the outside. You'd think, oh, there's more surface area, so evaporation can happen quicker, but it seems to evaporate quicker with the smooth outside. So uh, this, this isn't science, it's just observation of how different things work for me. I, I agree. I think about the uh, old Patagonia Retro X's uh, jackets yep, exactly. or the, I think Mountain Hardware had some, they called the monkey fleece where it was just, it looked like a, a, a some type of bathroom mat almost. And it was really cool uh, if you're going to the mall, but if you're going to be outside doing outdoor, you know, aerobic endeavors and some other stuff, that's where I really found the limitation of where it would gather. So when we, we talked earlier about, you know, having stuff that's tight, understand that there's a difference between being tight and being form fitting. And for me, I like stuff to be a little more form fitting on the base layer and the, um, and the mid layer, especially because it just, it just creates so much better freedom of movement for me. And see, I don't even wear a mid layer. So, you know, this is the difference in our bodies where for me, I go from base layer to windshell and that's it anything more than that. And I'm conserving too much heat and moisture and I'm not getting the moisture away that I need to. So I vary the weight of my base layer uh, based on the general ambient temps, but I don't even carry any mid layers. It just goes base layer. It's a wind cheater, base layer, wind cheater. And then a puffy goes on over that when I come to a rest. And, and something but, else I look forward to is the, the depth of the zipper. You know, yep. if you've got a mid layer or something that you can zip and vent, that makes a big difference too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pit zips on jackets are huge. Yes. That's important. Yeah. If you can, if you can find it. Yep. This is where I I'll diverge a little bit from Evan's uh, take on wool for at least for base layer. I personally still prefer it over, over, over a lot of other different types of material, just because I, I, I do enjoy the moisture management at least the way it feels. I, I won't sit here and try to say that it's as good as probably some um, technical fabrics that have been developed, but just over the course of multiple days, uh, I still appreciate the comfort level that, that it provides for, for me. And like I said, that could be different for a lot of other people. You're not alone. In I that think entity. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think like I'm it. in the minority. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan. I'm a it's, huge uh, fan of wool. And the, the thing with wool is we've getting some wool blends now that are, that are wool poly blend that, that have a good fit. But I like when people think about wool, they think about itchy, scratchy uh, wool and not the higher quality Merino wool. But I I'm a fan of wool base and mid layers and I use them a lot and they don't stink. They don't, they don't attract the moisture or the odor. I'm sorry. After multiple days. So there's some good wool out there. There's, yeah, I, I, I know I'm in the minority. My experience with wool, when, when wool kind of became popular again, I don't know, 
early 2000s, I think, is when wool-based layers really started making a comeback. I, I dived back into wool and gave it a shot. And, you know, for two or three years, I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. And then one day my wool base layer was, I don't remember, it was too dirty or something. So I threw on one of the old synthetics and it was a revelation because what wool does is stays wet for a long, long time. And it may be more comfortable when it's wet, but for me, it's all about getting dry as quickly as possible. And so that's, that's where my preference for synthetics come in. I want, I want my base layer to be dry just as quickly as it can be. And there's just no comparison. Now, maybe there's some new poly wool blends I haven't tried that do a better job of drying quickly, but I'll take a synthetic that dries quickly over wool that's comfortable, but it stays wet for a long time. That's my perspective on that. I don't disagree with that at all, Evan. The 100% wool, like merino layer, will not dry as quick as some of the poly blends. That, in my experience, I still like my wool yeah. base layers though for multi-day trips, simply because I'm going to be sweating the smell. South. Yeah, it's the southeast, yeah. and, gonna, and so it the the merino wool does not uh, hold odors or, or foster that that growth that that stank yep. uh, that yep. we are prone to here in the south. Yeah. I absolutely concede that it doesn't dry uh, nearly as fast. Um, it just stays comfortable longer. And I, for, for me personally, sometimes comfort uh, will overtake my ability to dry or to ensure consistency of being able to dry just because the humidity level here, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. I know I'm going to be wet and I know there's mm. not a lot I can do about it. And so it's a comfort factor of, being able to, to stay wet longer and, and not stink. That's, that's a big part of it. I want to throw out here right. too. We were talking about down earlier. There was a, uh, a gentleman by the last name of Tribune who wrote a good deal about the Kentucky uh, frontier. And he talked about uh, a gentleman who was wearing a, a goose hat and it was exactly that. I, I, I'm assuming he was using it because he didn't have a hat to keep his head warm, but he killed a goose and he skinned it and gutted it and tanned the hide and stuck a goose on top of his head. So if you're, if you're ever worried about having the absolute most uh, uh, modern technical fabric out there, remember a guy uh, survived with a goose on his head. <laughs> Yeah, but we all know that those dudes were tougher than us. I mean, well, and I mean, come on. I mean, uh, Simon Kenton, when it was uh, his buddy Jaeger was shot in the face with a smoke pole. He went running through the woods with nothing on, but basically a loincloth with no moccasins and no rifle and nothing was in the wilderness of Kentucky and eight acorns for about eight days. I'm just telling you right now, I'm not man enough to do that now. Not, so, I don't give so a you, shit what any of you say. You're not either. <laughs> that's a, that's bring, a man's man right there. I'm just telling no, you. No argument there. God almighty, you, uh, man. I can't imagine these dudes. Yeah, you bring up – well, that's sort of what I was asking before about um, – it harkens back to that about changing, you know, maybe if anybody changes their attitude on what they consider to be fully successful – uh, outside when they're used to, uh, to, to living a life inside. And I think that perspective is huge, right? Like people back then, I, I can't say were tougher, although I believe that they generally were, but they were just used to a whole lot more, um, discomfort, a whole lot more work for the simple things that we take advantage of maybe now. Um, and, and I think that perspective is extremely important 
from a mindset, right? So let's say you don't have the, the greatest clothing of the, the best sleeping bags um, to take with you. You know, it's, it's, you, you might still be okay, right? Like you, you can still kind of go back and, and adjust your expectations and still kind of go out and enjoy test yourself even um, with, within reason. And, uh, and remember that people, you know, did it with a lot less than we have now and we're okay. I'll say, you know, we, we talked a little bit early on some of our notions, I think of what a true expert outdoorsman is, is in somewhat, uh, encapsulated in like this sort of notion of the last of the Mohicans or something like that. These people who can go out and live for days on acorns and they're drinking water from a, you know, cupped hand from a, a stream that they pass. And when you go back and look at the historical record, you find that a lot of those people were suffering too. Like a lot of those folks, they, they didn't intend to live like that for very long. They were surprised by Indians or, uh, you know, got caught out when they weren't expecting to. And uh, they had enough knowledge to sort of survive with what they had, but they were constantly, as Evan kind of mentioned, trying to get back to this homeostasis, which was probably a cabin or uh, a rock shelter or something where they, they knew they stood at a better chance. Yeah, we made that exact point last podcast that, you know, this this myth that we have in, in America about the mountain man, that was not the stories that we tell are exactly like you say. They were the exception to how those people tried to live. The cabin was where they wanted to spend the winter, not out for sure. Um, I'll tell you what, though, the the notion about adjusting expectations, first of all, 100 percent agree with you. I tell people all the time, you do not need the best gear. Absolutely do not. You just get out there and get it done with what you have. But the other thing, you know, people see like a trip video that I film or, you know, pictures and they'll be like, hmm. well, how many miles do you cover a day? And to me, that's a city person's question because I don't have any idea when I'm off trail. And I guarantee it's a lot less than would sound impressive because as soon as you're off trail over logs, through bushes, um, climbing lots of altitude, that distance is a hundred percent irrelevant. And I think a lot of people get into trouble in the back country because, you know, they're used to walking through the city park or, you know, maybe a, a very well-maintained trail. And they, they know that they can do two and a half to three miles an hour with a light day pack on. And that becomes their template for what they're going to do in the back country. And that's an area where I think you absolutely need to adjust your expectations because there are so many variables that are beyond your control that you can quickly get yourself in over your head and in big trouble if you're applying that template to your backcountry pursuit. You've got to always be adjusting your expectations on the basis of, of what's going on in the environment that you're in. Wise words. Uh, you know, mileage off trail does not equate to mileage uh, walking even on trail or even just around the neighborhood. Uh, I, I love that you said it's a city person's question. It's a, it's very much an inexperienced questions where people are trying to create this comparison, but then they're trying to maybe put a, a, a barometer or a gauge on, well, if, if they can do this out here, then maybe I can do this out there. And, and that's something that really, and every time you think you get a handle on it, you wind up bumping up into an experience in the wilderness where maybe you have an off day, you don't feel as good and you have to drastically change, you know, your expectations for mileage or whatever else. And part of that 
part of making sure that some of us don't have to come look for you is the ability to listen to your body and, and make call an audible there to say, today's maybe a day where I got to back it down or, or, or plan ahead enough to where you have a few different outs on whatever trip it is you're doing. Yeah. Some of the hardest people I've ever spent time in the woods with are foresters. Cause these are people that walk through a forest all day, every day. And if you're cruising t- timber with a forest or doing forest ecology study or habitat improvement, like I do a lot of that sort of thing, these people, their experience walking through the woods is different than your typical person. And you look at this guy and he's, you know, 50, 60 pounds overweight and he's got these big, massive steel toe boots on <laughs> and they'll just walk through the woods like they're floating because of their experience moving through that environment. They have more experience. I mean, I mean, I spend a lot, I spend time every day in the woods, but I don't spend eight hours a day cruising timber in the woods. And it's just a different animal. I mean, Greg, I, I had a, go, go ahead, ahead, sir. Go ahead. No, please. I sir. had a real similar experience. We were doing a search for a guy that was missing, uh, in a Ray County, Tennessee. And we had, and I'm talking about hills and hollers and steep, uh, full of, I've never seen so many rattlesnakes in my life. Um, we bailed off this, uh, this into this drain, uh, following a local who knew the area. Well, this dude was, I, I'm not making exaggeration. He was lighting one cigarette off the end of the other, wearing cowboy boots tucked into like wearing blue jeans tucked into his cowboy boots. And we're side healing on stuff. That's, you know, greater than 45 degrees. the guy probably smoked two packs of cigarettes that day, never quit talking. And it was all I could do to just like, if I could have hooked a rope to him and let him pull me, I would have. (laughs) I love it, man. That's what I'm talking about. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm going to be completely forthright and honest is I thought we're going to wind up carrying this guy out of the woods, you know? Yeah. No, no. It's amazing, isn't it? He grew up in those mountains. He knew exactly what he was doing and he put a hurting on all of us. Every footfall for those guys, there's a, every footfall for those guys is they know where it's going to land and what it's going to feel like and how they're going to adjust. And they're making those micro changes. I mean, it's no different than a a real well-oiled team busting in a room and taking it down. Right. Yeah. That's just, they know that and they've done it a million times. And this guy has done that a million times. And I, I mean, I, I love these people. I love these red. I mean, that's my family. I love these rednecks that walk these hills and do that sort of thing. It's a different kind of tough and it's a different, I mean, it really is goes back to, uh, we've worked with a lot of professionals in search and rescue that I wouldn't want to pack my bag for me or do anything. I'd go anywhere with this dude. And it's such a different, deep respect for someone who who's, who's a true woodsman. Uh, but not in our sense of a definition of woodsman. Uh, so once again, more dirt time in the field provides a broader perspective of what's capable and what's out there. You, you, you just sort of hit on something that I've really been focusing on. Uh, what is the definition of an expert woodsman, right? Is it the ability to build a fire 12 different ways? Is it, you know, what is that metric? And, and, one of the things that I just keep coming across is exactly what we're talking about. It's, it's this, it's a mix of the individual skill sets, you know, survival, shelter, fire, et cetera. But it's, it's also 
tree and plant identification uh, on an almost subconscious level, followed by just being able to read the terrain, right? The, the, the landscape, being able to play the civilizations and cultures that have lived there and the people who follow into that a lot uh, more comfortably are the people who tend to be successful over time. And I've kind of like colloquially watched shows like Alone, on occasion. And then, you know, like watch the very first episode. I don't know anything about the rest of the season or how it's going to go. And I'll try to sort of figure out who I think has the best chance. And and the one sort of constant I found is that the people who seem to have the best chance are the people who aren't, they're not living on the TV show alone. They're just living, right? Like they're just comfortable enough in the environment to where it's not a huge adjustment for them they're adapting to things as it pops up and uh, and they're able to just sort of ebb and flow with what, what comes at them. Cause they're just living um, not trying to live differently, but I have found, and I think the, the episode with the guy that kills the yak with a knife and uh, builds the big rock shelter and all, I think that was season seven. Um, there's a guy named Keith Sires uh, from, from Kentucky that was on that uh, season acquaintance of mine. But one of the things that I, uh, that I noticed is that a lot of those folks wind up being taken down by much smaller entities, right? Like the guy with the big rock and log house was taken down eventually. I mean, he wins, right? Sorry, spoiler alert, but um, he's eventually like taken down by mice. The mice get into his cabin and they start eating the food that he has stored away at a rate faster than he can eat it and that rate faster than he can sort of seemingly figure out a new way to store it. And you see the same thing with, with illness or sickness, right? Some small little thing brings down people who are, who are doing extremely well. Um, anyway, I just thought it was interesting, uh, the, the way that a lot of these things start and the way that a lot of them turn out, but people's comfort level does seem to have a, a definite impact on their ability to keep going. You know, Shane, something that you made me think of um, when you talked about, you know, I was talking about adjusting your expectations of what you, you can do, but it's not just your body that fails. Long before your body fails, your judgment is is definitely uh, goes downhill. And that's where we see these catastrophic failures in the wilderness. You're, you know, you you couldn't read a map the way you should because you pushed yourself further than you than you could. You're not paying attention to that rock and it rolls underneath your foot. And, you know, it's kind of like what uh, Anthony was just talking about, where the things that take you out maybe aren't what you expect. But, man, that 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 attention to detail. Um, I've got a really good track record for safety in the backcountry, but it's all about attention to detail and trying to keep myself in the uh, mindset where I can have that attention to detail. Man, as soon as that goes, I'm sure that's where most of your SARS searches start is with some kind of failure related to that. Uh, it, it either comes from a, uh, a false sense of, of knowledge or security or a false confidence where people like, Oh, I can read a map. I have a compass, but yet they Amen. have no Amen. idea. Uh, or you get into this cascade effect of where one mistake begets another mistake begets another mistake. And those mistakes typically get worse oftentimes at an exponential level. Um, so, so this one mistake is minor, but now it's compounded that has caused another mistake or another issue that's now 
moving into a major uh, and, and they, they kind of begin this cascade effect the, of leading for one bad mistake leads to another bad mistake leads to another bad mistake. And, and I've done such a deep dive on some of these search and rescue um, case studies that it's always normally something small. Now there's catastrophic events that happen, but even after that happens, what, you know, how do they respond? What do they do? And a lot of people die, um, in, in a situation that was very livable had they, had they been able to gather themselves up and make a, like you say, a smart move and let's, let's look at this, but they, they, they panic, their mindset failed them. And, you know, you talk about the number one thing that gets people on alone. And some of those it's, it's their mind. You see some of those people that have built a very good living uh, situation for themselves, but they can't handle it here. Um, and I'm not throwing shade at them, but it's just an observation where you, you see that the mind is what takes them out more than anything all too often. I'll say it again. Cause I say it all the time. I said it last time, but it's a, it's, I call it four puzzle pieces, mindset, skills, tactics, and gear. And if you're missing one of those, you're not going to make it at some point in time, you're going to deal with some sort of issue. You got to have all the, when I say tactics, that's just working with other people, but, but, um, you, you've got to have all four in play in my estimation. It just seems to play out well that way to, and, and people need to come up with their own way of considering it, but you've got to figure out how to develop mindset. And one thing that, that I think you were talking about Shane and please correct me if I'm stepping on it and not doing it justice is the, the Marine Corps calls it the combat rule of three, where if three things are going wrong, you've got to change what you're doing or you're going to deal with some deep doo-doo. And so I, I just, I stole that idea and just call it the survival rule of three, not the same rules of three that we're talking about the night tonight. But, but um, if three things are going wrong about your shelter, you've got to do something else, whether it's move that shelter, set up a different style, change the bedding, uh, change your clothing. You, you can't continue to go, okay, I'm going to fix it after the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. You've, you've got to change something at, three period. And that'll, that if, if the way I say it that way is my hope is that people have a number because it's a, a quantitative thing that we can go, okay, three things. I start changing my setup, you know, and again, an example is like, you're going hiking, you expected the weather to be good, but you didn't look at your weather app. You look, it starts to rain. You realize I don't have a rain jacket and you look around and there's no way to find shelter in the area you're in. You, you can't continue to hike into that. Mm-hmm. Those are three things that are anomalies that stand out that are causing problems. You can't continue to just, well, I'm going to push on. You've got to change something quick. That's how people die or experience tragedy. And it's just I, I a will... simple way of trying to come up with a way of quanti- quantifying it so people can get that out of their head. I'll say that a, a lot of search and rescues uh, that I've been involved with, the compounded mistakes begin before they leave the home, right? So like mistake number one, oftentimes is something that they're not even equated or shouldn't. I'll give you an example. Uh, I had knee replacement surgery six months ago and I'm not in good shape anymore and I want to go out and get in good shape. So I'm going to bite off more than I can chew without realizing I did it. 
Um, you know, you mentioned cell phone, we mentioned app use a second ago, not checking uh, a weather app. Well, I can't because I got caught out here late and didn't have a flashlight. And now I use the cell phone uh, as a flashlight instead of a cell phone. Right. So I have this powerful tool in my hand that may still be working and I've used it for some simple uh, factor. Or uh, as I've seen a few times before too, the day after Thanksgiving, right? So people eat, you know, this ungodly amount of calories that they don't normally eat. And then the next day they think they're going to be able to go kind of walk it off all at once. And if they have any underlying medical issues that they don't know about, uh, a lot of times that sort of massive caloric dump followed by a lot of exercise right after that starts a chain of events that they can't overcome without medical intervention or sometimes can't overcome at all. So we have a, we have a way that we teach to where we combat that and have to reverse that, that flow. When you get going down that bad direction, at some point you got to call a timeout. Uh, and this is pattern. The, the name escapes me, but there is a fairly famous uh, mountain guide rope rescue technician that would roll up on a scene for a climber to rescue somebody in a mountaineering situation. And the first thing he would do is he would roll up and he would smoke a cigarette. <laughs> and, and, and the whole time he's smoking the cigarette, he's evaluating the situation and he's devising a plan, a plan of attack for this. And so there have been times on, on training exercises and live rescues where you feel like the circumstance is, or the situation is pressing down on you and you have to make an immediate response and somebody will call it smoke break. And that basically means we're all going to take, you know, 90 seconds and we're just going to back up and we're going to look at this and then we're going to quickly devise a task. And so if you can take that mental smoke break to where you find yourself heading down, okay, Hey, I've, I've made a few mistakes here. I got I got to call an audible here. Let me take a minute where you stop and, and really get some altitude above your situation and then try to make some objective calls that aren't ego driven. You got, you got to be willing to get in your own kitchen a little bit and, and, and accept the fact that, Hey, I might be capable, but my buddy's not, or maybe my buddy's capable, but I got to say, Hey, I'm having a rough day. Let's, let's, it's time we take a different path. So if you can get in that habit of having that evaluation technique come in, then I think that's something that, that is a, it's a sign of maturity. Uh, it's a sign of, of being self-aware and it's also a sign of taking a, a really good look at your group and your group capabilities. I know we've all got people in our group who say, Hey, Evan, you okay. And Evan could be turning inside out. He's going to say, I'm good, ready to go. And you know, he may, he may not be, or, or it might be me one day. It might be Craig another day. So so to be able to be able to call the ball on that and, and, and make wise decisions is something that is takes experience and it takes effort and it takes practice. So I think we might have reached a point. I know Evan has to take off. Might not be a bad idea to stop there and then we can continue on the next topic at a later time. I do want to make one yeah. thing. I know, I know Evan has to leave. I want to ask him if, if he or Craig, either one have heard of these things. They're called Bothy bags, B-O-T-H-Y. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. In the winter, I carry one. 
So if, if you guys aren't familiar with body bags, they originated, I think, really out of search and rescue over in Europe. And we're seeing a lot of people aren't aware of them. Uh, you can get a two-man body bag or a four-man body bag. Uh, my suggestion is is to get the four-man, really, if, if you want to cram two people in there. You still get pretty friendly with two people. Uh, in the chat, I put a link to one uh, on Amazon for a field expedient shelter. Now this is not going to be a comfortable night, but uh, you've got cold boy right here. Who's talking about, I'm, I'm, I'm very cold natured uh, up on Roan mountain up in North Carolina in January, February, 17 degrees, massive wind. Um, and we're having to do some patient care and, uh, and probably two feet of snow and some just howling wind and, uh, this goes back to creating a very field expedient microclimate. Uh, these bothy bags are worth their weight in gold in that situation, especially when you have a patient that is having a hard time generating their own heat. You get them off the ground, get a mattress underneath them, get some insulation on them. Two people in this bothy bag will create a microclimate where you can, you can, it gets hot for the person that actually has, has, you know, is not injured. Uh, but it is something that is uh, worth mentioning and it's worth uh, having some of these folks who may not have heard about it, take a look at because they are, they work great and they are, they are quick to deploy and they're very, very effective. And they're small and light relative to what they provide, which is a nice, nice factor. Yep. Yep. So that's all. I want to make sure I got it in because I linked to it and I just wanted to make sure that, uh, that I got that, that mark in and talked about it. Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks, man. I'm going to grab one of those. Actually, I, I, I hadn't seen those before. They're very, they're very effective. Very effective, especially especially for medicine. Uh, if it's raining, if it's cold, uh, it provides a safe environment. Also, and I, if you're if you've ever tried to do field expedient medicine, and around a crowd, every book, everyone becomes a trauma doctor. And so if you can put your patient in there and, and your best uh, uh, medic uh, and then have one person that's attending to your medic, that's a step and fetcher, a go-getter, you know, Hey, I need a, I need a gopher. Uh, and then the other people can be working on other things and it. And it gives some privacy to your patient. Um, it gives a climate, a microclimate there and a level of comfort. And uh, they're very effective. Or you can use the comp or the trash bag. Yeah. I'm halfway kidding, Craig. It's like a two person trash bag, more or less. It really. Yeah. It's uh it's yeah, those it's, things are great. I love those things. Mm -hmm. That's uh it's one of those things that I think well, anybody should get them, but at least these teams, whether it's search and rescue, law enforcement, military or whatever, they should have that around. Everybody should have those around. It's something that's always always in my truck it's always in my wife's jeep it's always there for just such situations but there's many that don't know about them so that's why i wanted to kind of yeah i learned about them from that well some of those folks that evan and i trained together years ago that's where i yeah. learned about them those things are great yep yep cool all right matt back to you so let's do final thoughts. Make sure you plug everything you've ever wanted to plug ever. Uh, do the time crunch. Let's start with Evan. Yep. Uh, yeah. So I guess what I'll say is um, 
you don't need great gear to get out there. You just got to keep your head straight and, you know, have the right expectations. But if you've got the money for great gear, we do make some pretty great gear. That's hill people gear. Um, Shane, I, you, you said you go through gear in three years. I'm going to be real disappointed if that pack that you're using wears out on that time frame. No, it's good to go. Yeah, right on. So anyway, that's that's all I got to say. Appreciate uh, all of your time. I've, I've enjoyed Anthony. I, I enjoyed uh, your contribution, your historical perspective. Um, really, really cool stuff. Thanks. It was great to uh, great to spend some time with you and meet you. We wore a Hill People gear bag all morning this morning. We're, we're one all the time. So thank you. Craig. Yeah, good to be with you guys again, as usual. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I always learn from all you guys. This is a pleasure. And, Anthony, it was great meeting you. It's another one to add to the list of people I need to know and know more about, so I appreciate you coming on. This has been good. Uh, mindset, skills, tactics, and gears, the way I approach all subjects that we we cover for people, I think it's a good way to at least get people out there thinking and starting. And, and again, I would just back up Evan and say you don't have to spend a fortune to get out there just get out there and start trying things and seeing what works for you and uh just to add one more to the list too since we're all here let's i'm a i'm a freak i'm a fanboy of hill people gear too i had this conversation with evan a couple of years ago about man i hate showing that serape on camera because mine is nasty dirty because i use my stuff all the time uh, he's like man go ahead and do that's what we want so yeah, that good equipment. We want. So uh, appreciate you all making the equipment you do. Appreciate Matt for having us on. And uh, you can find anything and everything you want to know about me as it relates to what we do at naturereliance.org. Uh, that's connected to all our social media and podcast and blog and all that good stuff. So thanks again, Matt. Anytime. Shane? Uh SE Knives, uh, I want to give a quick plug to Craig's podcast. And I know that uh, Evan has some really, really cool videos on on his uh, YouTube channel. Uh, we have the SE Rat Pack podcast that I'm woefully behind on uh, as far as getting some podcasts up. But we have, like I say, we're up to 14 or 16 followers, depending on whether or not my mom and dad listen. Um, uh, we have the, the, the Instagram and Faceway social media um, but, uh, Matt, I just want to, I really appreciate you, uh, providing the opportunity to do this. I always learn when I'm with Craig, uh, and Evan, I'm always honored to be here. Uh, it was great. Uh, I always learn uh, with this. And so I, I think that's part of, uh, what I know from Evan and I know from Craig, I think the best teachers are, are students first. And so when we can be here and learn from one another, that's, uh, these conversations are always enlightening. So. Uh, thanks again uh, for the opportunity. Anthony? Well, Matt, I just wanted to start by saying a big thanks to you for uh, letting me be a part of this. Um, you know, realizing I, 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 I don't have really a company or anything like that. Um, most of what I do is still heavily involved in, in our profession and uh, going to keep it that way till, till I retire. But um trying to learn as much as I can. Uh, this has been a phenomenal opportunity for me. And then share, share, I, I think a few years ago when I started this unique historical perspective and there were other people out there doing it and certainly people out there who are doing it better than I am. But um, I wanted to, 
there to be a reason for it. And I wanted there to be some uh, knowledge to gain from it. And the biggest knowledge that I've gained from it so far is not to be scared, right? Like I don't necessarily have all the greatest equipment though. I do certainly have some nice stuff. Um, uh, it's just about being smart and, and using it, uh, using what equipment you have to the ability that you can pushing maybe that a little bit farther under controlled circumstances. And, uh, it just equates into so much more of, of life, uh, you know, beyond the outdoors. So get out there, uh, do the best you can with what you got, be smart about it and, and don't be afraid to push it. And I remember, uh, when you were cold, there was a guy running around the frontier of Kentucky with a duck on his head. That's right. That's right. And to, uh, to keep this, this, this trend pattern up, man, let me just say the hill people gear Serape. Uh, it's awesome to have in a patrol car, especially if you work in the middle of nowhere, if you're ever having to sleep overnight somewhere in some substation or even in your vehicle for whatever, or if you're just in there and it's cold, yeah, that's a lifesaver. One of my favorite, one of my favorite things that I have. It's just wonderful. Um, big thanks to this to the panel. Big thanks to everyone that's watched, listened. Uh, didn't have any questions that came up, but uh, let's see here. As I said before, make sure you are supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. If you like what these guys have to say, if you've learned something, make sure you're following them. Make sure you find them. And it's not just on Facebook. It's not just Instagram. Check all those different, uh, the, the variety of, of sources, um, all, the, all the apps, to include TikTok, although I don't think I'm on, I'm, I'm not on TikTok. Um, but yeah, make sure you're sharing, liking, subscribing. That goes with everything primary and secondary. Uh, if you haven't already, hit that like button. Um, big thank you to our uh, sponsors, the sponsors for the show today. Big Tech's Ordinance, Filster, Primary Arms, Walther, and lastly, our Patreon subscribers. Without all their assistance and support, we wouldn't be able to do this on a regular basis. Speaking of Patreon sub subscribers, Patreon subscribers were able to watch this live. They could have, if they chose to, put questions up for us to answer. Uh, it's cool when they participate. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, actually. Uh, yeah, I've been monitoring a couple different chats just making sure nothing came up um but yeah nothing came up possibly for the next one though next one most likely we will cover fire starting fires and stuff like that you know the good stuff uh we'll cover food we'll cover water um we also are going to have an episode talking about improvised tools uh we have another potential two more episodes talking about different aspects of knives which that's going to be interesting because there's some some people that have appeared magically um kind of neat what else the next episode that's about to be released on friday will be the death of the death of the warrior episode talking about the big changes in law enforcement that have occurred that is all recorded that is all edited patreon subscribers of network support have access to it as we speak both audio with no ads and also in video on youtube so that's pretty much it. Uh, we are on Facebook, 736 different Facebook groups under the primary and secondary banner. Not really that many, but it's close. Uh, we are on primaryandsecondary.com. We have a forum at primaryandsecondary.com slash forum. Are also on Instagram. This weekend, we're going to be doing a big, big video shoot, shooting all kinds of stuff. 
having a good time. It's going to be fun. Patreon subscribers are invited. Ammo's on me. So that's all. I'll talk to you guys later.